fellow geoscienceaficionados, you are listening to Nice Chats from the Geology Podcast Network. I am Dr. B, and in each episode I will interview an expert in various areas in geoscience and share with you a little bit of their knowledge and expertise in the research of geological problems. Each of our episodes has a central theme, and since we'll have an expert walk us through the various subjects, you don't need to worry about having any previous knowledge of what we'll be talking about. As long as you're passionate about the study of geology, I, with the help of our guest, will take care of feeding you all the information you need in a casual and fun environment. It might amaze you, listener, to hear that magnetism has been observed by humans since the ancient Greek civilization even if not completely understood at the time. William Gilbert was the first to investigate the phenomenon of magnetism systematically, using scientific methods in the 16th century. He also discovered that the Earth is itself a weak magnet. It is overwhelming to think how much the understanding of magnetism and the observation of Earth's magnetic field has evolved through time in order for us to be able to reach the point we find ourselves at today. In this episode, we will talk about paleomagnetism. If you ever study magnetism in school, you probably heard that opposites attract. In some way, we could say that our guests today defy this rule. They are both brilliant young scientists that have worked together on a number of projects studying paleomagnetism and its role on understanding Earth's evolution. And their similarities do not stop there. There are also both great people that I have the privilege of sharing a beer with on many occasions, and I can safely classify them both as good dudes. Today we'll have a nice chat with Professor Ross Mitchell from the Chinese Academy of Science in Beijing and Dr. Uwe Krische, a researcher at Tübingen University in Germany. Hey Ross, welcome to the show. Um, how is the Mexican food in China? Is it better than Australia? Uh, better than Australia is not saying much, but yes, I have been to already two Mexican restaurants in Beijing, and they're both are decent. And by decent, I mean the margaritas are strong. Good question. <laughs> and uh, and and uh, you too, Uwe. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, how is the German food in Germany? I'm sorry, I didn't have something funny to ask. <laughs> Hi, Vito. Thanks. Thanks for setting this up. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the German food is good. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a particular fan of it. We have a lot of meat and a lot of like, yeah, I enjoy the Australian food, the burgers, and we don't have the pub food there is in, in like... Australia or UK or these places, these we, we Germans just can't, can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, before we start with the, uh, with the tough questions, uh, we have prepared a little game for you guys. We always like to start our episodes with a game to break the ice and today is no different. So today we'll be playing Geopardy. The rules are simple. I will ask you both a question and whoever hits the virtual buzzer first can try and answer. Much like Jeopardy, 
you need to start your answer with what is. If you don't, then you don't get the point. Got it? Okay. Got it. Um, Sylvia is my producer today and she's going to help me with the buzzers this time because last time we actually ran into a bit of an issue. Uh, but, you know, it was all edited out during the, <laughs> the post-production. <laughs> so you didn't get to see our technical difficulties. <laughs> okay, so everyone ready? First question. Between a syncline and an anticline, which has older rocks in the hinge of the fold? What is the anticline, huh? Point for Uwe. At which depth is the Gutenberg discontinued? Ross. <sighs> Shit. Yeah, I wouldn't know this one. <laughs> <laughs> what is 30 kilometers? Oof. So close. Uwe, do you want to venture a guess? Uh, what is... Come on, Gutenberg! For 50 kilometers? Okay, so Ross said 30 and Uwe said 40 kilometers. And it's uh, 2,900. 2,900? <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Okay, that's the core mantle boundary. What is the Gutenberg discontinuity, Sylvia? That's the core mantle boundary? Yeah, core mantle boundary. Oh, wow. It's a tricky one. That was a tricky one. So, so far, Uwe has one, and um, Ross, you're going to get your first one right now. Let's go. So, can you name at least one of the preserved Indian cretons? Ross. Darwar Kraton, Bastar Kraton, Bundelkalan Kraton, Singbom Kraton. How many do you want? U.S.A. 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 <laughs> When did the Perth Basin form? Ross. Mesozoic. What is Mesozoic? So second point for Team USA. Take that, Germans! <laughs> this one is so easy. According to the USGS geological timescale, in which era is the Statarian? Uwe. In the Precambrian? What is the Precambrian? But that's not the era, though. What is the Neoproterozoic? Oh, Neoproterozoic. Mm -hmm. So that's wrong. Ross, do you want to try? It's, you said Sidarian? Statherian. Statherian? Yeah. The, the era is uh, Paleoproterozoic. What is Paleoproterozoic? That's right. So it's uh, from 1800 to 1600 million years which is our favorite supercontinent. Nuna. That's, uh, uh, yeah, that's Sylvia's time. Nuna time. <laughs> it's Nuna time. But I, I understood Sturtian. Okay. Oh, sorry, man. Don't, don't, don't blame my English, please. <laughs> okay. Oh, man, this is Larry's. We have a clear winner. And once again, History repeats itself. It's Team USA! <laughs> <laughs> so Ross got ahead of Uwe, 3 to 1. This was a battle for the ages. Germany versus USA. It was straight out of a Hollywood movie. Did you know the answer to all of these? 
I have to say that many of the questions I would not be able to answer. Let me know all about it on my pages on Twitter or Instagram at GeoDrB. That is G-E-O-D-R-B. And share the Nice Chats podcast with your friends. Rate and review if you like it. Now let's learn a bit about how these two dudes study the Earth's magnetic field. Um, so in the intro of the show, I always promise the listener that they don't need any previous knowledge in order to understand the show. So let's start with the basics, you know, for their benefit, not, not me, obviously, I know everything about um, paleomagnetism. So can you define paleomagnetism for us, Ross? Yeah, uh, we, many of us know what magnetism is, uh, but paleomagnetism is when a rock has preserved uh, ancient magnetic information. You can think of it as a fossil magnet. Right, cool. And I've often heard people referring to paleomagnetists as paleomagicians. So, Uwe, why do you think people see what you guys study as magic? What I mean is, how does paleomagnetism work? Like, how do minerals record the polarity of the magnetic field? Yeah, so, I mean, personally, I don't really like this term because, in my opinion, it's because, um, I mean, paleomagnetism is, is really um, working a lot in, in fields of geology and, and also paleontology. But we are, we are like in between physics and, and geology, I would say. So a lot of things we are doing comes a bit out of nowhere for people that don't really have a, a, a huge background in, in, in magnetism. So that's why, I mean, and I mean, some of us are also to blame that we, are don't, we don't explain it properly. That, um, yeah, it's, it's some things seem to be a bit like magic. And I mean, I have to say, like some things we don't also really understand very very, um, I mean, up to the, to the details, like how the Earth magnetic field formed, for example. When did it start to form? This week, I mean, we know, the, we know it, where it's been formed in the outer core. And that's, there's, there's a lot of, like, iron involved there. So, so the, I mean, the physics behind it kind of, we, we, we do understand a lot of it. But why does it, why does it change its polarity, for example? This is something which is, which is very, like, yeah, magic, if you want. <laughs> and then, yeah, I mean, the other thing is how it's been recorded. This is um, fairly well understood for, for like, um, uh, like, volcanic rocks. It, um, there you have, you have above the degree temperature, you have uh, particles that get, like, then um, um, preserved, like, get, when, it, when it cools down, it's, it's, they, they, they are not able to, to move. To, they cannot align to the magnetic field anymore, so then it gets preserved. But in the sediment, there is a lot of mysteries how we get a, a sedimentary uh, magnetic signal preserved. So this kind of works in the same way that when it gets compacted, small particles like with a with a like um, anisotropy kind of shape, they get aligned to the magnetic field, and then once it's 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 it becomes a sedimentary rock. The, it gets preserved, but there's some things about that which, which we don't understand completely. Right, that's inter interesting because um, you mentioned uh, volcanic rocks and then sedimentary rocks. So what kind of samples do you actually look to collect? Um, I mean, 
I would say, I, I'm in my academic history, I, I'm collecting sedimentary rocks and, and volcanic rocks. Um, I mean, um, metamorphic rocks is, is a bit tricky. There are people doing paleomecho metamorphic rocks, but when you're not sure when it got deformed and when the, what the temperature was, what the, what the, um, the pressure conditions were, we don't know what's actually happening with the magnetic field. And, and then a direction of a metamorphic rock, we don't really know what's, what's, what, what this means. So for me, I'm, I'm, I'm not a rock magnetist. Like rock magnetists, they work on the, on the magnetic properties, I would say, like in simple words. But paleomagnetists are working more on the directions, like on the, on the, yeah, on the preserved directions of the magnetic field in the, in the rocks. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm doing sedimentary rocks from, like the youngest rocks are um, like 30,000 years old. This is like, like I'm looking at an excursion of the magnetic field, like very young rocks, up to the, the, the Pleistocene, the Miocene, the, the um, Mesozoic, the Paleozoic, and the Precambrian. So, and then, of course, yeah, more and more volcanic rocks if you go back and do more paleogeography, because they just work better. The, Makes sense. Um, so Ross, I, I know that uh, at Curting, uh, you guys had a little paleomag lab. Do, do you also have one over there in Beijing? So uh, actually, we have the same lab that we had at Curtin, that I had at Caltech, that I had at Yale. So Joe Kirschwink, professor uh, at Caltech, he has designed this automatic uh, pick and put system. He was vacuuming uh, one day, and something got caught on the end of his vacuum. And he thought, hmm, I can use that uh, to have samples get turn the vacuum on, they get sucked up, turn the vacuum off, the sample gets dropped. So he's designed uh, several different prototypes now that all these different labs in the, uh, you know, around the world all use. So it, it's kind of neat that uh, you can visit any paleomag lab, uh, almost any paleomag lab in, in the world, and immediately you can get to work. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, very interesting sample introduction system. Uh, but when it comes to actually measuring the magnetic properties, uh, how, do you, how do you actually do that? And what kind of uh, instrumentation do you use? It's a magnetometer. And the magnetometers we use today are very, very sensitive. Um, they are at superconducting temperatures, so really, really, really cold. Um, and this is important because we don't actually measure the magnetic field. Uh, we measure the amount of current that is generated in the presence of a magnetic field. And if you want to detect a very weak current generated by a weak magnetic field, you need very, very little resistance in your circuits. So that's why we're at superconducting uh, temperatures. You can get that with uh, nitrogen uh, now, uh, or, but really in the past we've used helium. Um, so uh, these are the physics behind these superconducting magnetometers is, is quite complicated uh, but uh, 
Yeah, that's uh, also another thing that uh, Kirschfink has been working with. There's only one company in the world that makes these. Um, so in every AGU, they throw a party for all of us paleomagicians. Paleo so it's, it's a total nerd fest. <laughs> uh, right. And um, so you, you did say that you have the, you know, the sample um, introduction system that just vacuums the sample up. But I mean, you're also interested, once you have the measurements, you're interested also in uh, orienting those in space um, in regards to the position that you originally collected them, I imagine. So when you collect these samples in the field um, and then going from that to, you know, transporting them into the lab and then finally measuring them, how do you manage to preserve that orientation? <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, that's fairly straightforward and, and fairly easy. I mean, we have to take the orientation of the, of the sample, obviously. So we drill it normally. We, I mean, in, in ideally, we drill the sample and the sample is still in place. But what we normally do is we take another ring so we know how the how this sample was oriented in the rock. And then we put a, just a device on it, just a tube with a compass on it. And this device tells us the, the, the dip and the, and the azimut, so the, the deviation of magnetic north, and then the, the yeah, the deviation of the of the horizontal. And what is what is important with volcanic rocks is what um, they can be very strong. So the the magnetic measurement of the orientation can be can be wrong based on the on the magnetic signal of the rock itself. So that's why we always do also um, a sun compass measurement, which is just yeah, just a. a, a um, a stick and then a, a scale and then we write down the, the shadow angle and this we convert this to the uh, yeah to the, the expected azimut and then there is always this we always use to correct for the declination there's always a local declination which can be fairly high up to a couple of degrees five ten degrees which can be um, can be bad if, if, if this is not accounted for if, especially if we do paleogeographic reconstructions So, okay, so we talked about uh, maintaining the, the orientation of the sample in space. So we have the, you know, the, the 3D uh, position taken care of. But now there is also the issue of time, right? So um, do you, what do you do? Do you date the rocks that you've collected um, with a you know, with a geochronometer and, and then you link that to the, to the magnetic field you're measuring? Like, how does that work? That's a great question, Vitor. We can, you know, step one is finding a rock that when we put it in our magnetometer, we get a reliable measurement that it's stably magnetized. But just because it's stably magnetized isn't necessarily helpful unless you know the age that that magnetization was acquired. So that's, you know, typically why we focus on, on sedimentary rocks or uh, igneous rocks that have very low uh, degrees of metamorphism, because if you can, you know, there's, there's tests that we have for uh, seeing if the magnetization was acquired 
when that lava cooled, for example. Um, and that's, you know, we, these, these uh, field tests, as we call them, it's almost the most critical part of the paper because it doesn't really matter uh, if you have a magnetization if, unless you can date it. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, there is there's several things we do with paleomagnetism, really, and and one thing, obviously, the most important one is, is as Ross said, is that we we date the rock, and then we get a direction, and then we get a, like a paleopole for this for this area, and then we can we can put this craton, whatever this block in in like on a specific paleo latitude. I mean, the other thing is when we when we know better about the, the evolution of the poles of a certain area. We can also use um, Paleomac to date to date a rock because we can compare it with the parent polar wonder path with with published data, and if it if it agrees at just a certain period of time, we can we can say okay, this should be should be this age. Or the other thing is what we do in younger rocks, we go to a sedimentary sequence, especially terrestrial sedimentary sequences in like. Older than um, where we can use like like carbon dating methods, where we we don't really have any constraint on the age. There is no tuff. There is no no anything what we can date. So there is this huge sequences in in Eurasia everywhere which we cannot date. And there we 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 use magnetostratigraphy together with other things where we we get the polarity pattern. Like we go to a yeah, to, to a section, and we, we obtain the polarity on each like on on each level, like if it was similarized today, like what we call, call a normal polarity, or if it was the other way around, because we, we realized that the magnetic field switches polarities. And if we do this, we, we get a polarity pattern for the whole section, and we compare this to the known um, like geomagnetic time scale. And then we can we can propose and like we always have to use other constraints like biostatigraphy, but then we can say okay this likely as as was um, sedimented in during this age and then we can also yeah get the age with paleomag. Mm. And um, yeah, it's interesting that you talked about how um, the magnetic field flips. I did I did hear that about uh, about magnetic field that sometimes it gets upside down or. Um, down under, as they say in Australia. <laughs> um, uh, how, how does that happen and, and uh, how often does it happen? Is it cyclical? What happens? Bloody hell, mate. Need to work on our accent. <laughs> what was the question? Sorry. <laughs> um, the question was, uh, how does this uh, flipping of the magnetic field happens and... Um, how often? Well, as as Uva correctly said, we really don't know why the magnetic field reverses. Uh, so that's that's a huge problem uh, that remains to be solved. Mm. Now, how often it reverses? There's also a lot of variation in that. Sometimes it reverses. Uh, every few millions of years or even shorter every few hundreds of or tens of thousands of years but then there's these other times where the magnetic field doesn't reverse for 10 20 as much as 30 million years these supercrons uh, and there's been at least three supercrons in the phanerozoic the last 540 million years so what causes the magnetic field to stop reversing 
We don't know just as much as we don't know why it reverses. Yeah, I mean, Ross, you forgot to say that also we tried to work on that. Like, we, it's sick. It seems to be chaotic. So on first order, it's definitely chaotic, the reversal pattern. But on the other hand, it seems to be like, like a, a cyclical change of, of reversal rate. And this, because it's on the order of like 100, 200 million years, this has to be related to the, to the mantle. So, sorry, so the, cycli the cyclicity um, is not something that is, um, that is sure about in, this, uh, in terms of like uh, the frequency of... So, some people have argued that the uh, reversal frequency is a random, you know, statistically it's random. Mm. Um, now, we have had three supercrons... And they are almost 200 million years separated, but three cycles, uh, I mean, it's just not much to really prove. Now, there could be Precambrian supercrons, um, but we're really only at the beginning of identifying those. So you're going to want, you know, three cycles is the minimum uh, to argue for a cycle. We do that with supercontinents. Um, So there could be a supercron cycle, which would relate to, as Uva said, um, long-term mantle dynamics. That would be believable. But the shorter-term fluctuations, uh, most people see it as, as largely random. But, you know, the reversal frequency, it doesn't just start and stop. It, it kind of slows down as it enters a, a supercron. So, you know, there, there could be cyclicity to it. We did a lot of work on the intensity of the magnetic field, and that we see is very uh, cyclic. Um, and, you know, once we're convinced of the cyclicity and the, and the strength of the magnetic field, maybe we'll take on uh, the more what would be more controversial, uh, the reversal frequency. Okay, and uh, Ross, when, when I was back at Curtin, I did hear you mentioning a true polar wonder, and I have to confess that, um, you know, I might have been distracted once or twice, <laughs> but uh, could you please explain to me again? I promise that this time I will listen. Cool. Yeah, so true polar wonder uh, on Earth is another way that continents can move other than plate tectonics. Um, but it also occurs on other planets and moons, and often is called planetary reorientation. And it's, you know, Earth or any planet or moon is spinning. And if the spinning body is redistributing its mass, uh, on Earth we do this through mantle convection and plate tectonics, sinking slabs, rising plumes. In this dynamic planet that's spinning, uh, you can... Um, find a new spin axis that is more rotationally favorable. So the whole planetary body will actually reorient in order to find a new stable spin axis. So on Earth, this is what's involved is the solid shell of the planet, the crust and the mantle, the silicate Earth, if you will, that solid shell rotates around the liquid outer core. And it, and it finds a new stable uh, position. But it's unlike plate tectonics, which is the relative motions of the continents, 
This is the whole solid shell wholesale motion together. Okay, for our next segment, uh, we like to ask always the same three questions at the end of every episode. Uh, these are questions which are a little bit more personal. They are designed to make each guest a little bit more familiar to the listener. And they also allow us to compare experiences and also opinions across all of the geoscience research fields. So we'll take turns answering this. Um, how did you first decide to become a geologist, Ross? The earliest memories I have in being, you know, connecting with geology was really fifth grade when I saw, we've seen the world map many times, but this was the first time we learned about plate tectonics and the idea that all these continents were related just kind of blew my mind. You know, I, we didn't really talk about how they fit together or anything yet. Uh, but just the idea that all these continents that have different countries were somehow all connected in a process called plate tectonics, that, that blew my mind. And the other early memory I have is, you know, I wasn't a rock collector or a dinosaur freak, but the mineral pyrite, this cubic, this perfect cube, uh, you know, we call it fool's gold in America. I remember picking it up at a museum uh, and asking my mother, you know, is this natural? And she said, it's a mineral. Yeah. And I just couldn't believe that nature would make something that looks like something a human would make. Uh, so those two memories, you know, were my earliest encounters with geology being cool. Oh, very nice. What about you, Uwe? Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't have a like uh, story like that. You know, honestly, I, I was not like um, geology. We have a very strange geology kind of um, thing in school. So I, I was not good in that and I didn't like it, I think. But um, so I was very good in math and physics in school. And I was always sure that I, I don't want to do that later. I don't want to study physics because it's too boring. So then I, I, I look for a way to combine physics and, um, yeah, something else. And then I, I, I found out about geophysics. And I thought maybe this is a, a, a nice thing to do. So I started to study geophysics. And geophysics in, in Germany is also very theoretical. So my first two years was, was physics. It was the same as if, if I would study physics. So this was math, pure math and physics, theoretical physics, I mean... And then when I started geophysics, then I, there's, there's seismology, geodynamics, and paleomagnetism in Munich. So at this point, I again, I, I said, no, I, I don't want to, to sit in front of my computer or my, my, my um, like, um, office life. So then I said, okay, I want to do that. I want to combine fieldwork because I always liked fieldwork. And then I met Valerian Bartazzi, my, my PhD supervisor, and this was actually the point where I started to, to get into geology. And, and since then, I, I went on a lot of field trips. And I, and I think this combination is the great, also a great thing about paleomagnetism because you can combine very theoretical things like doing, doing a modeling of, of, the, of the core. This is, this is like, yeah, these are, you have to be a proper physicist or mathematician even. 
but you can also do all these like collaboration stuff with paleontologists and geologists and and, and everything you can work on all, all time scales and yeah so ross what are some of the specifics of the research that you are conducting uh at this moment uh, what's on my desk right now are revisions for a paper that I think will really be important for people believing that true polar wander is an important process on the planet. Uh, you know, we don't. No one argues that it happens. No one argues uh, that it, it can happen. But when you ask geologists, we just care about did it happen? What's the evidence in Earth history? And we tend to believe things that are well-established in, in young rocks before old rocks. And unfortunately, most of the evidence for true polar wander comes from older rocks. Uh, and so I'm working on a Cretaceous age true polar wander event that was very controversial, back and forth in comments, replies, and science. Uh, but I collected about a thousand samples from Italia, of all places. And it's just, you know, it's one of the most beautiful sediments. It behaves like a basalt. Uh, and we collected about an order of magnitude more samples than normal. Instead of 100, we collected 1,000. And uh, I think once people see uh, the evidence for a most recent true polar wander event, uh, they'll start to say, hmm, maybe there is something to this process. Cool, sounds very interesting. And what about you, Uwe? Um, yeah, so apart from this um, stuff, I, I have to finish from Australia. So the, what I'm doing mostly here is, is, yeah, so doing magnetostatigraphic dating of, of sections which are related to human evolution. So um, we had this, this nature paper last year about the oldest, it's not a bipedal hominid, but um, is a like is a is a form of bipedalism which which humans have in and they're still in trees so but this was found in in Bavaria here and is we I dated it to be between 11 and 12 million years old and there's really a lot of contro controversy in this like migration of of humans and and um and in the end, yeah, what, what, what caused certain evolutionary steps and what caused them to leave Africa, for example, and go, and yeah, there's this Eurasian um, homino, hominids, the, the dryopithecids, and, and they, 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 they were in Europe for a long time and then they disappeared suddenly and then they came back at, like a couple of million years later. And so, so what we are doing now is one of our, our hypotheses is that this is strongly related to the evolution of the, of the, the desert belt. So the, the Sahara, Central Asia, Arabia desert belt. And what this, when did, when did, when the Sahara first, first appeared, this is, this is completely unknown. So a lot of people say this was in the Holocene. Other people say the Pliocene or the Pleistocene. So, so one, two, three million years old. And there is, there is people suggesting that it's as old as 7 million years. And this is all depending on some spots where they found some, some dust um, input in, this, in these sediments. And, and rock magnetism can, can um, nicely um, show the variations in, in um, aeolian input in, in a sedimentary section. And this is what we want to do in terrestrial sections and try to see 
if the desert belt appeared at one time, at one, at one point in time, at, at, at several places, or not, or if it was a was a dynamic um, mixture, stuff like that. Yeah. Okay, Ross, what do you enjoy doing when you are not geologing? I love rocks and I love rocking. Uh, music, making music is my hobby, and you know I like uh, not only you know performing and writing, uh, but the recording. And there's a lot of science involved in, in mixing and producing uh, all the filters that Uva and I use for our statistics, uh, the frequencies, wavelengths. Uh, so, you know, it's just like science. You have to get creative, but you also have to have the technical ability to pursue your creative ideas. But, you know, for me, it's a, it's a nice thing like science, but it isn't science. And if I don't do it, I don't, you know, I get tired of the science if you just do it all the time. And then they feed off each other. You know, sometimes something in my music will inspire. You, you do one, you're ready to go back to the other. Uh, everything cycles, so it's good to have something else. So, Uwe, uh, what do you enjoy doing when you're not geology, besides looking after the kids? Yeah, so... That, that's about it. <laughs> There's not much else, but they grow up now and I, you can play with them. So that's, that's really funny this oh, time now. Cool. <laughs> well, so, sorry, guys. I just got told uh, that I have officially been made full professor and I have to... Congratulations! Go that's awesome. That's Honestly. so awesome. Nice. Congrats! <laughs> That's great. That's great. Woo! Did the participation on this podcast have anything to do with that? It was basically make or break it. As soon as I, in my 15-minute promotion presentation, I featured nice chats very highly. Hey, hey listen. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> no, buddy. I honestly, I really respect what you and Sylvia are doing. Uh, I think, you know, all of us are using government money, uh, taxpayer money, Uh, and all of us got inspired by scientists before. If we just spend our time in the labs, if we just spend our time talking to each other, uh, we're not doing the, you know, the job of science, and that's engaging with people yeah. who are curious and sharing our curiosity. So I'm so glad you guys are doing this, and it's great to see everyone. Yeah, Thanks man. for thanks, joining thanks us, and, Russ. Man, go celebrate because you deserve it. Awesome. Congratulations. Congrats. So, Uwe, uh, Ross had to leave us because he just got promoted. So, you know, breaking news, even though this is going to be released much, much later um, to the date that he actually got promoted. But um, thanks. Thanks so much for uh, for participating. Like, I thought it was such a great dynamic between you two. And I, I really learned a lot today. I hope our listeners did as well. But yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. This, this was very interesting. And as, as Ross said, I think it's... It's, it's important to, to like yeah to, to talk about this more not in, in, in this very scientific way but also like a bit um, understandable for, for, for other people. I think that's, that's very that's also that duty for, for us scientists to, to become more understandable and more to say it in easy words what, what we are doing this, and it's also good for us because it also always helps us to to explain what we are doing in for for people that are not necessarily experts in the field so thanks it was great yeah that's the that's the whole idea behind the nice chats this is all for today's episode 
You can find Uwe and Ross on Google Scholar and ResearchGate if you want to find out more about their work. Ross mentioned that his hobby was making music and he has kindly provided us with one of his originals. Please stick around to hear it after the sign-off. Speaking of the sign-off, if you can't take criticism, don't get all sentimental. This podcast is brought to you by the Geology Podcast Network and is sponsored by Traveling Geologist. More episodes of this and other GPN podcasts are available at travelinggeologist.com or wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please subscribe to Nice Chats and tell your friends about the show. If you like our podcast, please give us a five-star review. I